James chapter 2. My brothers and believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who says, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Shall we just pause for a moment in prayer? Father, may we have ears that are opened, a heart which is receptive. Would you engage with our mind, our memories? Would you lead us in the way everlasting as we ponder, as we lean into your word, the word of truth? Have your way with us. Spirit of God, lead us in the way everlasting. Lead us in the kingdom way, which would be honoring and glorifying to the Father. We acknowledge our weakness that we're prone to wander from you, from the God in whom we love. We are prone to be a mouthpiece for those who would attack your church. Have mercy, Lord, when we forget who your church belongs to. And Father, we get so preoccupied with looking in on ourselves. Help us to be like those who have gone before us, strong women and men of faith that we would look with confidence to Jesus and stand firmly in the truth and the strength of your Holy Spirit and always glorifying you for the transformation we see in our lives, our church lives and across the world. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the first ever assemblies that I took at Pitlochry High School 12 years ago, to which I still meet, I have met one or two people in, say, Fisher's Bar or something like that, who reminded me of of this story. Um, The first ever assembly I went into, I took Luca. (laughs) 
and I had to leave early because look at the nappy. <laughs> and then you could smell it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Luca. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, we'll go to Greg's after this. That'll be fine. <laughs> but my second or third assembly, I, 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 was, uh, spoke, uh, spoking, I was speaking about perception. And I, I, I spoke about how I grew up in, in, in Glasgow and, and we, my parents lived from week to week and I often had to go and borrow money from my neighbours uh, until my dad got paid the next day and then go to the, the corner shop and buy bread and, and cheese for his pieces, my dad's pieces, he worked on the night shift. And I just, you know, and he added a little bit of, onto the story and I built up this big story and I brought out a can of uh, cat food and, and I said, we had cats, and there, there has been occasion in my life when there was nothing, and we had to eat cat food. And you could see the kids just watching us, and they were always very polite at Lockery High School. And, uh, and I took out a tin opener, and I started opening this tin of cat food. And just as I was about to get the lid open, some of the juice just naturally went over the side. And I didn't think about it. I just didn't want it to spill in the ground and the janny be after me. So I just caught the liquid and went like that, and you could see kids going, <laughs> it's true, <laughs> they started to eat it, dry heaving, and then I, you know, I spoke about, you may think this, but the truth is this, and, and we, we unpacked that teaching point, but really I'd exchanged a tin of tuna and wrapped a, a cat food label <laughs> around it, you know, but they didn't know it was great fun, and I did tell them at the end. And, and I still have young guys uh, in their 20s come and speak to me about, they used to call you the cat man for ages. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I want to read this. From one, before we touch base on James, I just got a wee thought I want to uh, hopefully have in my mind. Um, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. These are the words uh, the Lord spoke to Samuel after he arrived at the house of Jesse, where he had gone following God's commands in order to anoint the next king of Israel. Saul was the king of Israel at this point, but he'd wandered from the way of the Lord. He, he wasn't a man after God's own heart. And when Samuel entered uh, Jesse's home, he was presented with Jesse's son Elab. And he thought this, surely the Lord's anointing uh, one stands before me as he saw this good-looking, no doubt, strapping, strong, fine, probably the first son of, of Jesse, but that provoked God to speak these words. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, Samuel, but people look at the outward experiences, but the Lord, Lord looks at the heart. God sees things differently. So Jesse then proceeded to show off his seven sons uh, all standing in the line to see if they were going to be anointed with Samuel, who was God's uh, leader, the great prophet, priest. And Jesse didn't see uh, David as one who should be there. David was the youngest. You know, there was Benjamin. No, that's wrong. David was definitely the youngest. And David was off in the fields, being a shepherd, a young shepherd, tenderly caring for the sheep of his father's flock. 
And we know the story of how Jesse brought David in and the Lord saw David's heart, a man after his own heart, and he was anointed with oil. So our Lord looks at the heart and is blessed to find a heart that is pursuing his. Our Lord is looking upon our heart and a heart that loves God, like David, is special to the Lord. It's precious to him. And I actually think is outstanding to Abba Father when he sees a heart which yearns and longs for the things of his God. In James 1, verses 1 to 13, we are going to explore uh, James's warning in the church about prejudice. He introduces a subtle form of discrimination. It shows up how people treat one another. First and foremost, in God's family, and then how we live outside. It shows up in how we look and treat people who aren't like us, people who may smell a wee bit funny, people who may sound weird, people who don't look like us, people who come from different cultures and backgrounds, who speak a different language, people who could become part of God's family, could be immigrants, could be refugees, could be former drug addicts, people who are a part of God's family, uh, who struggle with alcohol and addiction, and it manifests itself in many different ways, people who may look a little bit shabby, etc. You know where I'm getting at. Verse um, 1 here is key. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Then what James goes and explores is, is practically what that may look like. Suppose a man comes in and he's dressed like that, and suppose a rich man comes in and he's dressed like that. How do you treat them? And then what he does, he looks logically at Scripture to unpack how God's people should be among themselves, but not just among themselves, but out there. But we know, and you know, especially if you've got a husband or wife who are not uh, like you, followers of Jesus Christ, they will be looking at you and how people treat you and how you treat others and how you speak about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And they will be making their mind up about God's family and ultimately about God. So eyes are on us. So how we treat one another and how we are are perceived out there, James unpacks this. Who was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was the leader of the church at Jerusalem, who were at this point in their history were uh, struggling, they were poor, and, and James, who became a martyr for the gospel, James was the one who was set to lead this. And, and, and he did a good job. Our question today is this, will we love one another? And will we love them? It's the question that James, in this book, which is quite like the Proverbs, it seems as if it's dancing about all over the place, but there is good logical flow in this. James, at this point, to his church community, and for us, as this is God's royal law, his his whole law, as it's presented to us today, 
How are we going to treat one another? How are we going to be perceived? How are we going to treat those who are out there, maybe against us? And we're going to look at how to, uh, my question in my mind as I'm exploring this is, we're called to live with, within the kingdom, which means we've got an ethic that we are called to live by. Some two or three of the guys who were praying for Sam and Whitney prayed, Lord. They started off by saying, Lord. And we, if you unpack that word, Lord, that too easily trips off uh, our lips, that is a profound way to talk about God because you are saying to God, you are king. And as king, you have said, set, this is how you two are live. And, and the power of the Holy Spirit and as you walk in my grace. So that has been on my mind. How are we to be a kingdom people living this which we have been called to live, following in the dust of our rabbi under the lordship of Jesus Christ? And I just, as, as James unpacks um, from verse 8 onwards, he gives, I can see three things that he is asking his church community to rediscover from verse 8 through to 13. To rediscover if they are to be that which God has called them to. And I think that is a challenge to us today also. Will you love them anyway? And the first thing is this, is love. The first thing he says, and and I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 just to keep it fresh in our mind. Remember, this is after he's, he says, don't show favoritism. He's given, a, he's given some practical, he's given an illustration about rich and poor man. And then he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. My question is, what does this thing, royal law, mean? We touched base last week on what Scripture is. Not to, it is not pick and mix. We are to be bloodied as we read Scripture. Our, our conscience should be daily challenged as we lean into God's Word. And if it is not, you're not leaning into God's Word. And if you are daily convicted and bloodied, by what God's word says about him, about everything that's happened, and about us, then it's a good thing. Continue to lean in and press in, and maybe just maybe the Lord will reveal some of the questions you have in your mind and heart, or he will not. That's up to him. So this royal law that James is speaking about, for him, it was the Old Testament scriptures, are commands with divine authority. Leviticus 19 verses 18 says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, talking to God's people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself, says I am the Lord. This is not a suggestion I'm giving you. This is a command love, honor, cherish, care. So this royal law isn't just good advice, but it's a decree from our king. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, your king says to you, and he says to me, love your 
neighbor. But what if our neighbor is not to be pitied, but actually is to be feared? And I would hope that I'm taking our thought process out of God's family, actually into the world. What if our neighbor is actually to be feared? How are we to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in a society which is increasingly hostile to some very basic things of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where a street preacher can be arrested in the streets of Britain for antisocial behavior and for hate speech. And where a doctor, a Christian doctor, can be sacked for calling a six-foot bearded man, for not calling a six-foot bearded man, madam. This is hostility. And, and I could, uh, but, but it becomes depressing if you do that, I could just list scenario after scenario after scenario after scenario. And you can fill in what, you, what your experience of hostility is. And that's where James, for us, becomes increasingly relevant. Because no matter the, the wind of change that blows all over the place in society, no matter what happens in the political realm, and I know that is very much in everybody's mind, and even no matter what happens in the life of the church, we're still called to love our neighbor, period, full stop. It's a decree and it's a command of the Lord. And I know myself... And, and, and therefore, I would imagine there's one or two people out uh, there just who are the same as me. That often starts in our mind when we are wrestling with issues and wrestling complicated things and harsh words or text messages or looks that deceive you to thinking that someone's against you. And it's where you go with that. It's, you know, there is a battle going on in our mind. And yet I'm inspired by people like Mervyn Shaw and Les Brown, good men of God, who for us guys in the life of the church have shown us the way to quiet men, but men of faith, who were in no ways perfect. But yet as I sat with both of them very late in their lives and, and, and knew their stories, I knew men of God who desire to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and be obedient by the grace of God and in his mercies. In James's context, he's thinking about orphans and widows and the poor. And his command is, is there also, love them. There's no law of the land that can force us to love. No law of the land. It's too intimate, it's too personal. When you love someone, you're giving a little bit of yourself to them. When you love someone, you're giving a little bit of yourself to them. That's why when a relationship breaks up that was dear to you, it's sore and it's hard because you've loved, you've not been perfect, but you've loved and now that relationship is broken and that is brutal to live with. However, we, as we saw in the case of Nazi Germany, we can see where the law of the land can keep us from loving people, demonizing people, discriminating people, 
We saw that in how the Nazi regime discriminated against the Jews. We know of that story, but there was uh, people who were um, uh, gypsies and people who were traveling folk and people who were handicapped and people who were homosexual. There was all sorts of people that that great big law of the land in Germany brainwashed the people and put fear in the people so that they went along with it. And there's a warning to us as we just pour over daily press and we listen to news. I've tried my best to come away from watching the news or to find my news from other sources because there's, there's lots of agendas coming through trying to shape us to think a certain ways. We don't want people in. We want to be ourselves. They're not like us. Blah, blah, blah. All sorts of accusations where the law of the land or the influence of the land is trying to influence God's people to be just like everyone else. And we're not called to be like everyone else. We're called to obey the royal law, the decree of the law, to love our neighbor as we would desire our neighbor to love us. So this, and my German will be rubbish here, but the, the Sondergericht in Germany or the High Court or even the European Court of Human Rights cannot overrule what God has commanded us. We have a, a higher court, an eternal uh, way of life, and as subjects of the king, we're commanded to love whether our neighbor is to be pitied or whether our neighbor is to be feared. And James says, but beware. Beware if you show favoritism, verse 9, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. You're given a title. You're a lawbreaker as far as James is concerned. Notice how James is not afraid in that wee phrase to use the word sin. He uses sin to describe the way in which the church love or lack of love for the poor among them. Now, favoritism is loving certain neighbors, worthy neighbors, special neighbors, maybe neighbors who are like us, neighbors who we would quite like if some of their influence and some of their specialness would fall off on us. Maybe they'll put more money in the collection plate. Maybe they would let us go and have a wee holiday in their house in Barbados, whatever it may be. But what it is, it's favoritism is denying equal status of believers by elevating one above the other in the basis of wealth and in the basis of status. And you just know that that's not the way Jesus works. You just know that's not kingdom principles. I grew up in Glasgow, as I've said. A place called Arden, which was next to Camwardic. And next to Camwardic was a place called Kennis Heads. Now, Kennis Head has high flats. You know, four of them or five of them, dirty in a block. And we were just in we modern tenement places. And when I went from Glasgow, and I, I was in the south side, married for a while. Then when me and Miranda went to Stirling, it was like stepping into a different world. I'd never, even though QP, where I grew up, Queen's Park Baptist, it was, it was a good mixture of people, really poor and really rich. It was a good blend in the church. It wasn't until I went to Stirling that for the first time I was faced with middle class people. I, it was a strange thing. Dear friends of mine, you know, I, I guess I'm middle class now, but dear friends of mine. And I remember this party, there was a couple arrived at the church and and they, they owned a house in Millionaire Row in Bridge of Allen. Just 
up off the main street, and it was just affectionately known as Millionaire Row. I guess every house in Bridge Valley is probably worth a million, but this was really rich. And when I drove up there as the pastor, um, I couldn't get in because the gates were locked. And so I had to get out my car and press a button. Hello, <laughs> it's David. I'm here for the party. Oh, and you come, David. So I get in the car and the gates open. Oh, this is lovely. And I drive in this big, nice driveway. And I get in, and the doors open to me, and it, lots of people are standing about with their buck fizz or whatever it is. And it's the sort of house that's got a tartan carpet. Only certain houses get away with tartan carpets. And this house did get away with having that. It was ginormous, and you know, it was lovely. And people were walking about, la da come let me show The people who owned it are great people. Not pretentious by any stretch of imagination. But everyone, that, well, there's too many people as far as I could see were just playing along. And as if they were used to this, as if they were used to walking on the tartan carpet, apart from a hotel in Pilocri somewhere. And I was there, and I couldn't help myself, and I said, I can't remember the woman's name, I said, Liz, this is lovely, and people are standing there, and I go, can I tell you the last time I was buzzed into someone's house? Where was that? I says, Kenneth Head Flats in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff, and I couldn't help myself, but... Um, <laughs> Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality uh, to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Leviticus 19.15. Favoritism is a kind of love, but not the kind of love that God commands us to practice. Just be careful. Open up your social circle. Invite people to lunch. Have a coffee. I've got a wee thing with my kids, and they're here. And if they say, can we go to Greg's? And I say, go and speak to someone who's a pensioner first. <laughs> and I force them to go and interact. Even though you are wonderful, and it's great, some of you here, most of you, everyone here is a pensioner. I, I just like to, <laughs> and those who are only pensioners are very nice as well. I like to sort of just play these games with my kids. No, you're not going to Greg's unless you go and speak to that woman she's sitting there and nobody's speaking to her and she's and you know open your circle show love and there's many practical ways in which you can do that there is 168 hours per week i know our resources are limited and we can't get equally involved in everything but there's no excuse and you know that story of the starfish where a man was walking along a beach as often as he's his, his habit, and he, he saw in the distance a little boy who was bending down every now and then and throwing something into the sea, and walking a pace, bending down and throwing something into the sea, bending down and throwing something into the sea. The man was intrigued. This old man walked up to this young man and he says, I'm intrigued, why are you doing this? And the little guy says, well, if I don't put this starfish in, the sun will come out, it will dry up, and it will die. And the man said, son, this beach must have a thousand starfish on it. Round the corner, the other beach must have a thousand starfish on it. You, you can't really dent this. There must be with all these beaches at this time of year, and I've walked this beach 10 years, there must be you know, hundreds of thousands of starfish on this beach. And the, you know the story the young boy bent down again, he says, I can make a difference for this one. And he threw it in, and I can make a difference for this one. Throw wide the gates and love. That is what James is saying to us, to his people. Love equally. Love people. A little bit more briefly, humility. He, he says in verse uh, 10, 
For whoever keeps the whole law and and yet stumbles at just one point is found guilty of breaking all of it. For he who says, do not commit adultery, also says, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Yeah. What is the biggest challenge in your life? Pause, think. Who is the biggest challenge in your life? Pause, think. The truth be told, you are the biggest problem in your life. The man or the woman, the person in the mirror. Because we all face the same challenge daily of dealing with honesty. Honesty about who we are and our shortcomings. It's easy to make excuses. It's easy to blame others. It's easy to pass the buck. But here's James And he challenges us to face our tendencies of just making excuses for our sin. I'm no a murderer. I'm no a bad guy. I I never committed adultery. You know, know, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not that bad. But the truth is this. Yes, we could be worse. But the Bible says you break one part and you break it all. For whoever keeps the whole law, verse 10, and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all. It's like the Ten Commandments are a link chain stretching from earth to heaven. One of those links are are broken. Well, it doesn't really matter about the other nine. To break one is the same as breaking them all. We've got our first annual Pitlochry Baptist Church golf day. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, In September, the 5th, I think. 6th. Open to all boys, all girls, all men, all women. Speak to uh, me. And <laughs> although I'm not organizing it, but speak to me. I couldn't bother rhyming off the names of the guys. Guys who are golfers, someone hits a golf ball, goes through a window. Have you ever seen it where it's almost a perfect circle? Smash. Someone's just whacked it to think they're great. Maybe a kid through a window and it's just perfect, you know, just in the corner. Now, you and I know that that window, even though it's just, I don't know, 10% broke, is broke. You know, you may, like we do in our church, you may put sticky plasters or big bits, but that window needs replacing. They all need replaced. But, you know, it's compromised. The window is compromised. You break a little bit. It's got an effect on everything else. And, and, and we're compromised it's not just a wee hole, it's a, it's a hole, and a hole is a hole, and it needs to be replaced. So that's one point. But another point is this, we can't substitute one sin for another and try and say that that makes us good. I don't commit adultery, so is it okay if I go and rob a bank? Obedience in one area can't make up for disobedience in the other. Just as there's no such thing as being a little bit pregnant, you're pregnant or you're not pregnant, there's no such thing as being a moderate sinner. You're a sinner or you're not a sinner. And there's only one person I know who was without sin. If you break any part of God's law, it's as if you've broken the whole thing. You can't repair a situation by trying to make up in other areas or deflecting people's attention or God's attention away. 
like some wee kids saying, oh, don't look over there, Dad, don't look over here. Look at me, look at me, I'm not doing great. But yet there's a whole pile of rubbish over there that needs to be dealt with. God won't accept that as a solution. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. You stand in need of God's grace, and that is only possible through Jesus Christ. We need to be more honest. We need to be honest and authentic about our true condition. Can't make excuses, and our lives there at that point would be more pleasing to the Lord. And just finally, mercy, and I'll read these verses as well. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I put that up there. Do you notice how he mentions the law through this bit? The royal law he speaks of, which speaks of the source. God is king. And he says, I'm decreeing this. This is royal law. As God doesn't change, that's not going to change. He mentions the whole law, which points to the extent of it. If, he, if everything is God-breathed, then everything belongs to him. Then it's under his authority. And, and, and so... There's no part of your life that doesn't belong to God. There's no part of your life that the Spirit won't pursue to change and transform into the likeness of Christ. No part. And then the law that gives freedom. And that, that's what points, and we touched base on that last week, that the law and freedom, James puts the two of them together. Rather than seeing the law as being something that takes away your freedom, he says, no, it brings true freedom as you follow uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when the king tells us to love our neighbor, we can't make excuses and hide behind partial obedience. But when we obey, we discover mercy that James actually goes on to say delivers us in the day of judgment. This verse 12 and 13, we're going to look at this next week because it's a linked verse into everything that he speaks about next week. But if you struggle with that whole subject, um, you, if you think, I thought my sins were all forgiven, and, and they were all judged in Jesus Christ. And that's true, but we, we still will stand before God. And we'll give an account. 2 Corinthians 5 goes into that a little bit. And, and if we want mercy in that day, we must be people today who show mercy. Again, Jesus unpacks this to his, his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. He says, um, it's a story uh, where of the unforgiving servant who owed a multitude to the king and, and then the king was going to put him in prison and he fell on his knees and the king forgave. And then that servant who was forgiven went out and saw someone owed him not half as much money and that man fell on his knees. But the one who had been forgiven showed no forgiveness and threw the man, his family, into jail until he paid off the small amount that he owed. And then when the king heard of this, he dragged in that initial man. And then there was judgment because he had shown no mercy, even though great mercy had been shown to him. We've, we know mercy. Oh, outrageous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would take us from where we, we were to the place where we're going to be, as where Les and where Mervyn are, and the Father's glory and the rest and the joy of the Father. So in this story, the shock was that the first man refused to forgive the second. And unforgiveness should never surprise us. It's here, it's all about, but we need to watch it doesn't seep in to the life of the church. God has shown his mercy 
and we need to show mercy. And that's all there. I'm finished now, but I want to just leave you a couple of thoughts. I think James is incredibly practical, <laughs> incredibly hard. Um, but he's got a thought in his mind. He at one point did not recognize his half-brother as a Messiah. And if memory serves me right, there's no mention of him being a, a disciple of Jesus until Jesus was resurrected. Maybe, just maybe, he saw Jesus in that day between the resurrection and ascension day. I, I don't know. But I know now that as the leader of this fledgling church that's fallen in hard times, that's under a bit of persecution to which he will be one of the first martyrs, he takes that from his Lord and Savior, who just happened to be his half-brother. He takes that. And in his own words and in his own ways, but not changing the truth and the, the thread that all goes through it, he presents it to this young community who are trying to make a difference in Jerusalem. See, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Will he find love? Will he find honesty? Will he find mercy? He presents this challenge to his church family he reminds them that they were citizens of the king and obedience to Jesus' commands were not just an option, especially if they were going to survive in Jerusalem and then go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Love people as God has loved you. Be humble and walk in the grace of God. And finally, show mercy, and mercy will be shown. I think our communities need God's people to put their money where their mouth is or to put their actions where their mouth is. And our Lord looks at the heart and is blessed when he finds his people pursuing his heart.